The first letter, screw tape letter, is written to Junior Demon Wormwood, and it goes like this. Your man, that is the Christian you're trying to influence, has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. End quote. The demons know that if you can just fill up a person's head with a bunch of terminology, a bunch of words, human reason and philosophy, you can confuse them about the simple truth of God's Word. What is our problem with shame? Shame wants to infect and invade our imaginations and then allow that to express itself in our embodied action. And so shame often also will want to wrap itself around all kinds of other noxious, unpleasant emotional states so that evil can get its foot into the door every way and any way that it can. And it will tend to want to like, you know, as we like to say, it doubles back and doubles down. It is deceptive, it is relentless, and we have to continually identify where it is and drive it out where it seeks to do violence. This is really a project on evil's side of the equation where evil, its role, it really wants, it doesn't just want us to use shame to make us feel bad about ourselves, it wants to devour us. So you, know, so, you know, someone asked me once, well, if we were to eliminate shame, wouldn't we just like start behaving badly all over the place because nobody would be ashamed of doing it? And I would say, well, perhaps, but all that bad behavior that we're afraid that we would start to commit actually emerges so much, so much of the time it emerges as a way for me to cope with the shame that's, that, I'm, that I'm holding inside anyway. We have a problem and it is significant. Our problem is not that we were simply raised the wrong way. Our problem is not that we haven't seen good enough examples. Our problem is not that we haven't tried hard enough. Our problem is that we are hemmed in on every side. And because of that, our desires are warped. Lest you think you're just innocent in all this. Among whom we all once lived and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and, by, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we are. We're not individuals who would otherwise pursue God if the devil would just leave us alone. Far from it. Since the fall, with the first Adam as our federal head, we are averse to all good things. Here's who you were before you came to Christ. You came with fleshly desires that were against God. You came with desires of your body and your mind that were alienated to God. You came with desires that were evil, and the devil and the world did not have to seek you out. You rested in them because they gave you exactly what you wanted. We don't understand the sinfulness of our sin because somehow we think that we're innocent and, and, and our environment just somehow made us go all wrong. Nothing could be further from the truth. Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I am your host, Melba Toast. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. 
Hello ladies and welcome back to another episode of Thoroughly Equipped. So glad you have tuned into this episode and if you are new, welcome. Before we get into the episode, I want to talk to you about the Homegrown Generation Online Family Expo. Mark your calendar for Monday to Thursday, March 6th to 9th, 2023, and join us for this one-of-a-kind event. It's live, online, and fully interactive with an incredible speaker lineup. It's four days of nonstop fun, encouragement, and resources that today's homeschool families are desperately craving. All workshops will stream live online and will allow for audience questions and interaction. Attendees will receive a virtual swag bag and have access to the vendor hall, which is open to the public, and lifetime access to the replays. It's only $35 for lifetime access to the entire live event, as well as replays of all sessions. So if you are a veteran homeschooler, feeling burnt out, new to homeschooling, and could use some encouragement, or are contemplating it, not sure that you can do it, this online expo will be a blessing to you. Please check it out and register today. You can find the link in the show notes to this episode. And hey, if you are listening to this episode sometime in the future and the expo has passed, I would encourage you to check out Schoolhouse Rocked, a podcast on all things homeschooling in the Christian podcast community. Link to that podcast is also in the show notes. It's a great Christian resource that will encourage and guide you in the call to homeschool and train your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Okay, on to our regularly scheduled programming. So we are still looking at Jenny Allen's If Ministry, and we are looking in a little more depth the ifs use of analytical tools to equip women in discipleship. In the last episode, I explained what an analytical tool is, a way one looks at the world by using reason, logic, and observation. And by the use of these tools, one then comes to a conclusion about something. To analyze something is not bad. God gave us reason and logic. It's part of being made in the image of God. But here is where we run into problems. Reason, logic, and scientific observations are not to be the leading authority on issues of Christian life, such things as church practice and worship, evangelism, the soul, sin, and spiritual life, righteousness, Christian discipleship, salvation and sanctification, our influence in society, and most importantly, the gospel, these things are guided by scripture, not by man's reason, logic, and scientific observations, meaning they are not the authority on the issue, but are to be subjected to scripture. When man's reason and observations become the authority on these issues, you will see the scripture interpreted in light of the tool. And that's what I hope to show you today. I hope to show you how Dr. Kurt Thompson, who is a psychotherapist who specializes in behavioral neuroscience, how he uses the analytical tool of psychology, or more specifically interpersonal neurobiology, to interpret scripture. And by doing this, he will change what scripture teaches on the fall, sin, depravity, Jesus's purpose, regeneration, and the gospel. In the last episode, I presented to you a message from Dr. Thompson given at the 2019 IF LEAD conference titled Dwell. 
In that message, he hoped to teach the women who are in Christian leadership what it means to, quote, dwell in the house of the Lord, end quote. And by teaching them this, they will hopefully go out into the world better equipped in discipleship. His main point was that because we are now the temple of the living God, to dwell in the house of the Lord was to dwell with each other, and to dwell was to be known and to know others. And in this process of being known, our true beauty will emerge. He twisted Psalm 24 to teach this, ignoring the direct context of the psalm to produce a theology more in line with psychotherapy than with what the psalm was really proclaiming the protection and beauty that comes from God himself. In this and the next episode, I hope to show you how he integrates behavioral neuroscience, psychotherapy, and spiritual disciplines into Christianity. To integrate means to combine one thing with another so that they become a whole. I hope to show you how Thompson combines what he learns from psychology and behavioral neuroscience with the Christian religion and how it creates different theology and ultimately a different gospel. So how am I going to go about this? I'm going to present to you segments from an online lecture he gave at the Jubilee Conference in 2022 on the fall and a lecture he gave nine years ago at Biola University titled Preaching the Gospel in the Language of Neuroscience. Both lectures are centered on his teachings in his book titled The Anatomy of the Soul. The teachings here are the same teachings he has been presenting on podcasts, conferences, and on his website for these last nine years. I will present quotes from his book and website as well to reveal to you what he teaches. I really want us to grasp his teachings, and then we need to wrestle with the fact that Jenny Allen calls him a mentor and promotes him at our conference. Women in church leadership are being taught by him at these conferences. Women at the if gatherings who feel trapped in their sin or filled with doubt, anxiety, struggling to walk by faith in the Spirit, or women who don't even know God and the gospel, are led to believe that Thompson, through his knowledge in neuroscience and psychotherapy, can help them. It is a sobering thing to think about for me, and I hope to help you ladies see the problem in his integration of these things for Christian discipleship. So let's dive in. Let's look at Dr. Kurt Thompson's teachings and theology. The presupposition at the starting point of integrating any philosophy or analytical tool such as psychology or sociology is the belief that all truth is God's truth and man by mere use of logic, reason, and observation can arrive at truth, and in this case, truth about God, man, and the soul. This presupposition, that all truth is God's truth, ignores what scripture teaches on the depravity of man, his sinful nature, and his unregenerate relationship with God. And Thompson, at the very core, believes that neuroscience is another language that God uses to speak to us, a sort of cultural dialect that can be used to proclaim the gospel. At a seminar at Biola University, Thompson gave a talk on preaching the gospel in the language of neuroscience. 
In this talk, he relays how authoritative neuroscience has become, that people hold to its authority and use it as a lens by which people see the world. But I want to, um, I want to draw our attention to something. This is, uh, it's been very helpful for me to read a guy by the name of Michael Polanyi. Any of you, I'm sure, know him, Michael Polanyi and Leslie Newbegin, and they talk about this idea called the prevailing plausibility structures of the world. This idea that there are many, many different possible structures, many different lenses through which we can choose to understand the nature of the universe and how the universe operates. It is important to know that we in the West have for many, many years now lived and do live still under the authority of the plausibility structure of science. We don't go to the bathroom without having research telling us that this is the right toilet. Someone, uh, like the last time you used the toilet, someone researched that. Oh, you laugh until like the toilet overflows. And because we're in America, then somebody needs to like be, to be sued. So it, it, you know, it's just the way it is. But that makes people anxious and that's why psychiatrists have jobs. But you see, you see what I mean? There's nothing that we do that doesn't have some homage to be paid to that particular way of seeing the world. Does that make sense? And like a fish who doesn't really know that it's swimming in water, most of the time we're not paying that much attention to this. And in fact, we in the church now, we preach our sermons this way. We build our buildings this way. We do a whole range of things living under that auspice. Now, there's something to be said for science that is good because we'd say, you know, it was around 300 to 400 AD that the Cappadocian fathers started to write theology that led us to science. I mean, Gregory and Basil and Gregory were like some of the first great thoughtful scientists in that sense, because they believed in a world that could be observed and could be studied and could be thought about. And so another reason why this Center for Christian Thought is so crucially important to be thinking about these things. But even before that, we would say this. St. Paul in Romans 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 20 says this, paraphrased. From the beginning of time, if you look at creation, creation points you to God. From the beginning of time, we've known this. And so it's important for us to be aware that the discoveries of science are helpful because they are now giving us an additional language by which the gospel of the biblical narrative can be described and unveiled to a culture that listens to science. So notice how he used Romans 1.20 to back up his point about science and creation. Creation points us to God. But exactly the point made in this verse is that creation points us to attributes of God, namely his eternal power and divine nature. But Thompson stops there and doesn't go on. So let's look at the Romans 1 passage because this is what Thompson simply misses or full on rejects. This is what Romans 1 16 to 22 states. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice that it states that while man can clearly perceive through creation these attributes, they reject him and do not give him glory, exchanging the truth about his attributes for a lie and exchanging his glory for images of man and other created things. We most certainly can observe the functions of the brain and how it may relate to the behaviors of man, but observations of men who are unregenerate and deny God will reflect the suppression of the truth and will exchange the glory of God for the glory of man and created things. Even men who claim to know God will look at creation to try to make God like man and created things if they reject the scriptures as the authority on God and man. I hope to show you how Thompson does this, how instead of scripture being the authority, neurosciences, and therefore the glory of God is exchanged, and Thompson glorifies man and the brain. So he stated that man's observation can give us, quote, additional language by which the gospel of the biblical narrative can be described and unveiled to a culture that listens to science, end quote. There are two things I want to say about this. One, this is tantamount to saying that the observation of unregenerate men can enhance the telling of the gospel, making it more palatable to man. The Holy Spirit needs help clarifying the message to a culture that looks at the world through a scientific lens. As if the Holy Spirit didn't know that 2,000 years from the resurrection of Christ, people would be this way. The gospel message was given in scripture is antiquated. It's old and in a language for unscientific people. Two, that belief about the lack of God's sovereignty over his word leads to pragmatism, mixing the observations of sinful men with the narrative of the gospel to bring people to Christ. This is the foundation from which he writes his book, because he believes that interpersonal neurobiology can enhance the language or is a cultural dialect that he can use to help people receive the gospel and be regenerated. But as I hope to show you, his pragmatic use of integrating the neurobiological data as a lens to read scripture will produce different doctrines. He will have a different doctrine on the fall, sin, Jesus, the cross, regeneration, and redemption, which all lead then to a different gospel. At the time, Thompson's book, Anatomy of the Soul, was recently published, which was why he was asked to speak at Biola. He stated that there were five major bullet points of his book. These five bullet points reveal to us what truth Thompson believes neuroscience tells us about man and God. When I wrote Anatomy of the Soul, there are basically five points to this book. One is, we all long for a world of goodness and beauty. I don't know anybody who wouldn't want that, number one. Number two, if we pay attention to the emerging data that interpersonal neurobiology is pointing us toward, that data points us to the very world we long for. One, Thompson believes that we all long for goodness and beauty. Two, data from neurobiology points us to what we long for. So 
Basically, it points us to good and beauty. Now, I argue that goodness and beauty are character traits of God, and only God is good. Jesus stated that there was no one good but God, Mark 10:18. Because of the fall, we do not desire God nor trust him as the ultimate good and beautiful. We, therefore, do not really desire good and beauty in our unregenerate state. What humanity really desires is their sin. The scripture tells us that our desires reveal our heart. We fight, argue, and sin against each other because we desire ourselves, not God. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. James 4, 1-4. What comes out of our mouth comes from our heart, our desires, making us defiled. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these things defile a man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Matthew fifteen eighteen and 19. Scripture is very clear that all of those who do not believe in Christ love darkness, not the light, not goodness and beauty. Whoever believes in Christ Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John three eighteen to 21 In Titus one fifteen, we read Paul state, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. See, scripture reveals to us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah seventeen nine. In fact, listen to this clip with Bill Johnson from G3 Ministries on what scripture means by our hearts being desperately wicked. Scripture says your heart lies all the time. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's pretty hard to think of any Bible verse that contradicts the spirit of this postmodern age more directly than that one. Postmodernists believe that truth is simply a matter of perspective. And so nothing is objectively true. And when a postmodernist speaks about truth, He's talking about something that he thinks is fluid. That kind of truth is different, you know, from one person to another because truth is simply a matter of perspective. In other words, the only way for a postmodernist to determine what is true is by listening to his own heart. But Jeremiah 17, 9 says, that is not truth at all. It's a desperately wicked deceit. You cannot trust your own heart. It's deceitful and desperately sick. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah uses a word that means miserably feeble. 
but it actually goes deeper than that English expression conveys. If you, if you want to get Calvinistic with it, it means we're totally depraved. And in fact, that's pretty much how the King James Version renders the verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And that expression, desperately wicked, translates a single Hebrew word that has several shades of meaning. The Amplified Bible tries to get the whole gamut of meanings into one statement. So here's how they render the first part of that verse. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it is exceedingly perverse and corrupt and severely mortally sick. And then they add an exclamation mark for emphasis. This is the doctrine of total depravity, and it's another reason God's word, rather than personal experience, should define what we believe. Actually, this is really just an amplification of what the text says. Our hearts are deceitful, and your heart is not mildly misleading. It is totally and thoroughly untrustworthy, perverse, and incurable. And not only will your own heart deceive you, don't forget that in this so-called evangelical district of the visible church, we are overloaded with charlatans and false prophets. And listen to what Jeremiah says about them. Jeremiah 23, verse 26. How long shall there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? And the point he's making there is that false prophets and teachers of bad doctrine are themselves self-deceived. They don't just tell lies to the people who hear them. They have first lied to themselves. They prophesy, the prophet says, the deceit of their own hearts. Most of them, I think, actually believe some of the lies that they are telling. And this is the danger of thinking that spiritual truth is best discovered by looking within yourself. That's actually the very worst way to deny the sufficiency of Scripture because it's full of an incurable kind of arrogance. And again, incurable is one of the meanings of the Hebrew word behind that expression, desperately sick. We cannot fix what's wrong with our own hearts. The Word of God has that power but it isn't instantaneous or automatic. But this idea of an incurable sickness is an echo of another well-known and often quoted text from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? And Jeremiah says, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. What he's saying is you don't have the power to renew your own heart. The kind of heart renewal that all of us need, even as regenerate believers, what we need is what David prayed for after his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That is the work of God. It's not our own work. And only when a life is immersed in the word of God does that happen. Even in our regenerated state, we battle with this fleshly desire for ourselves, our protection, and our satisfaction. So our actions expose what we truly desire. We may say we want connection in God, but our quarrels, our mouths, and our evil thoughts reveal how humanity really loves darkness. This is why we need God's word, and it should be trusted in our authority in regards to man, our spirits, righteousness, and God. But back to his five points. Number three, that same data not only reflects, but energizes the biblical narrative. It reflects and energizes the biblical narrative. And as such, it changes our very experience. 
with God. If we are willing to pay attention to it and do what the data asks us to do. Fourth, a crucial element of implementing this data is completely dependent upon human beings engaging in the process and practice of being known. The process and the practice of being known. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, St. Paul says, the person who loves God is known by God. He does not say the person who loves God knows God. The person who loves God is known by God. So point number three was that same data, the neurobiological data, quote, reflects and energizes the biblical narrative, and as such, it changes our very experience with God if we are willing to pay attention to it and do what the data asks us to do, end quote. So basically look at the data, data interpreted by unregenerate men. Pay attention to it, do what the data tells us to, and it will enhance our experience with God. We're going to look how he integrates his interpretation of the interpersonal neurobiological data with scripture when we look at how he handles what scripture teaches about the fall in Genesis 3. We will also look at what he believes the data is asking us to do, and that will in essence be spiritual disciplines such as contemplative prayer, bodily and emotional awareness through meditation, study, confession, and repentance, centering, and mindfulness. Point four. Quote, a crucial element of implementing this data is completely dependent upon human beings engaging in the process and practice of being known, end quote. Now, he uses 1 Corinthians 8.3 to point out that the person who loves God is known by God. I'm going to play a clip from the same lecture for you to see what he means by being known by God. To Dr. Kurt Thompson, being known by God is directly related to how well we are known by other people. That the degree to which we love God is associated deeply with the degree to which we have the experience of being known by God, and the degree to which we experience being known by God is directly related to how well we are known by embodied people. This is really important because one of the things we come to find out is that it is in the process of being known that so many other important things begin to happen in the brain that leads to health. Quote, the degree to which we love God is associated deeply with the degree to which we have the experience of being known by God. And the degree to which we experience being known by God is directly related to how well we are known by embodied people. It's important because we find out it is in the process of being known that so many other important things begin to happen in the brain that leads to health, end quote. So, being known by other people leads to a healthy brain life. Basically, that equals healthy spiritual life, what scripture calls righteousness. So, in essence, he's saying that our righteousness depends on our brain health, which is tied to how well we are being known by others, which is directly tied to being known by God. And that is why community is going to be so instrumental to being known. This is what all his lectures, messages, and what he presents on his website and podcast, what his whole ministry is about. Here's the fifth, fifth uh, piece of this book, and that is, we live in a world that is increasingly atomistic, right? Individuals want to kind of go and do their own thing. That's not a biblical picture of the universe. Anatomy of the soul was not written primarily or solely for people's individual personal growth, because growth never, ever occurs only individually. It only occurs in the context 
of community. But we live in a culture that wants to tell us that I, by myself, can know everything I need to know, logically and linearly, as long as I just study hard enough, and that I don't need to be known in order for me to have an awareness of myself. We can't know ourselves until, as we say in the business, I see myself in your eyes, which of course is completely consistent with this idea in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God says, let us make man in our image, and then let's let man live like we live. Let's paraphrase. Let us make man in our image. In the context of community, what's really interesting, in the context of being known, my anxiety drops. And if my anxiety drops, it is possible for me to be more creative. This is not just about my own personal welfare. This is about my capacity for being creative and thoughtful about my vocation. Fifth point, he states that, quote, growth only occurs in the context of community, end quote. That, quote, we can't know ourselves until we see ourselves in your eyes, end quote. And that this is consistent with Genesis 1, 26 to 27, where he paraphrases it this way. Quote, let us make man in our image, and then let's let man live like we live, end quote. Again, I will point out that he doesn't clarify that the fall destroyed that ability to live as God lives righteously. So only in the context of community do we grow because in that community we can be loved by God. He believes that being known is a crucial part of integrating the whole brain which allows us to live as God lives as Trinity as community. This belief will have a direct effect on what he believes regeneration is. And I say regeneration, not sanctification, because this is his own term, as you will see. And this belief will be the lens by which he interprets the purpose of Jesus's coming and his death on the cross. That is, in a nutshell, the whole of his teachings. Because he rejects that man suppresses the truth about God in unrighteousness and man essentially desires goodness and beauty, he believes that such observations of man in certain sciences such as psychiatry, psychotherapy, and behavioral neuroscience can help man with spiritual health by being known by God, not through the scriptures, but through being known by other people. Because this is his philosophy, this is how one comes to be in relationship with God, He's going to have a different interpretation of scripture. He will look at scripture through the lens of psychology to observe and make conclusions on the behavior of characters in the Bible rather than looking at behavior of man through the lens of scripture. This will cause problems in his interpretation of scripture, and it starts very early. In fact, it starts with his interpretation of the fall in scripture. In the Jubilee 2022 online conference, Dr. Kurt Thompson gave a message on what transpired in Genesis chapter 3. In Thompson's telling of the account, Satan tempts Eve to doubt herself and her relationship with God and dives deep into the psychology of the temptation this way, that what Satan was doing in his temptation was lying to Eve about her relationship with God doing what he could to make her doubt herself and make her feel shame in her inadequacy. Quote, Ultimately, the servant wants to evoke within the woman the deep sensation of being accused, shamed that she is not enough in her current state of relationship with her God, but must seek something else to make up for her inadequacy. End quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 211. 
This shame is the result of conclusions she draws about herself. Conclusions that she not only thinks of, but senses and feels in her body, eventually causing her to believe, or as Thompson states, be living as if she was unlovable, therefore causing her to reach for the fruit. Imagine that if you're the woman and you're hearing this serpent tell you things about God. It's not true because he knows that in the day that you eat thereof, you will become like him. He's telling her something about God, but leaving her to draw conclusions about herself. This is a story in which the, the serpent is talking about God, but inferring things about her. If God won't let you be like him, maybe perhaps you're not worth his letting you be like him. But evil is the second smartest force on the planet. And it will do everything it can to do as little as it can to let you draw the conclusions about yourself that it won't have to. And so the descent begins. One can imagine that if you're hearing all this, you're hearing things about God, but starting to feel things about yourself, that same distress that overcame my patient who was 19 could easily start to show up in anyone who was facing the serpent for the first time. One can imagine that she starts to feel things that are uncomfortable. And so naturally, of course, the tree on the fruit starts to look very, very enticing. I've come to believe the lie the serpent has told, but more than I just believe it with my thinking brain, I sense it in my body. As we said, the mind is an embodied relational process. I'm not just believing. To believe is to be living. It is to live as if I'm not lovable. And I feel that lack of lovableness in my chest, in my face. In my hands, I embody it. I take on the sense that there's something wrong with me long before I have words to say it. You hear in that clip, Thompson allegorized the historical account of the fall, making the fruit a coping strategy for Eve and through implication a coping strategy for all men. But you do not hear him teach Humanity's fall was an act of rebellion against the goodness and sovereignty of God, resulting from a lack of trust in God. But instead, the fall was a result of believing a lie that Eve was not good enough. Listen to the way Dr. Thompson psychoanalyzes Eve's decision to eat of the tree of good and evil. Quote, quickly, in brain time, in nano to microseconds, her cortex is activated, especially those areas of her left brain that accuse, analyze, and judge harshly. Not only God, who now seems unsafe, but particularly herself, whom she now sees as inadequate. Eve must add something to her life to make up for her deficits. In the process, she separates herself from an awareness of what she feels within herself and follows this disintegrating spiral as she separates herself from God. Eve chooses knowledge over life, object over relationship. She acts out of the state of a disintegrated mind, her left and right modes facilitating back and forth, each vying for a contentious rule of her destiny. At times, she is overrun by the lower and right modes, emotions of fear and shame, to cope with this, she shuts them off, deferring to her logical, linear, left-mode processing that dismisses her emotion in order to keep her from being overwhelmed by it. 
She eats a piece of fruit, supplanting the dynamic, life-breathing experience of being known by God, the one who mentalizes her perfectly and longs to be known by her, with the static, non-relational, temporal creation of her own mind. In rejecting the gift of this perfect relationship with God, she buys the right to acquisition, to forever working to obtain and hoard enough so that she will eventually be enough. Instead of finding abundance and joy in being known, she stakes her claim on disconnection. The rupture is complete. End quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 215. The object that would make up for her inadequacy is the fruit from the tree of good and evil. The shame she feels by Satan's temptation caused her to take and eat the fruit in disobedience to God. Thompson psychologizes the temptation of the serpent as a rationale, and this, quote, rationale provided by her reptilian friend is enough to help Eve cope with her emotional distress of shame, end quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 214. As a psychiatrist, Dr. Thompson is psychoanalyzing Eve here. He's basically reading more into her emotions and thoughts than what is given in the text. As one who glorifies man, he will pay attention to her and ignore what the text is saying about God. In psychoanalyzing Eve, he now psychologizes sin. To Dr. Thompson, sin is a result of the evil that wants to devour us. The evil that wounds us by making us doubt ourselves and God's love for us. It brings us to doubt that God made us good and made us to create beauty. That doubt causes us to hoard and lash out and respond in hurtful ways to keep those things that we think help us feel we are enough. Shame is the ultimate evil, as you heard him relay in the opening clip. It is the antecedent of sin. Quote, shame preceded by fear is consistently the antecedent of sin, as we will see in the following chapter, whether we labor, label it humiliation, embarrassment, ignominy, dishonor, disgust, or disgrace. The sensation of shame is so basic to the human condition that perhaps the most precise definition is the painfully acute awareness that something is wrong with me. It is the felt sensation of deep inadequacy, end quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 192. Now, antecedent means a thing or event that existed before or logically precedes another. It comes before sin. It produces sin. This is such a minute twist. Let's look at the fall and notice where the Holy Spirit describes shame as entering in. Is it before the eating of the fruit or after? After taking the rib from Adam to create Eve, God brings them together in the institution of marriage. Genesis 2 verse 24. Verse 25 is where we'll start. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Genesis two twenty-five to three ten. Now the text does not actually say they felt shame after eating. What the text does say in regards to what they felt after partaking of the fruit was fear, because he was naked, as we see in three ten. We can draw an educated conclusion that shame was involved in part of the reaction to having their eyes open to good and evil and their nakedness. We draw that conclusion from 2.25, which unites nakedness to being unashamed, and that is because they were innocent. There was no act of sin in which to be ashamed of. Scripture talks a lot about shame's association with nakedness and its connection with sin. 2 Samuel 10.4-5, Isaiah 47.3, Ezekiel 16.39, and 23.29, and others. In Revelation 3.18, we see Christ counseling the church of Laodicea to buy from him gold refined by fire so that they may be rich, and white garments so that they may clothe themselves, so the shame of their nakedness may not be seen. Our shame and our nakedness magnifies the sense that we need a covering, hence why Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves for a loincloth. But Thompson uses the fall to allegorize sin as a result of fear, shame, and a lack of attention to the voice of God who loves us completely. Quote, Adam and Eve's shame has doubled back on itself. Eve's fear led to shame, which led to hiding fig leaves, which led to fear, which led to shame and hiding behind trees. This is the basic pattern of sin. It begins with not paying attention to the voice of the one who tells us we are loved beyond comprehension and who repeatedly asks us where we are and follows the low road of fear, shame, and concealment. End quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 218. Scripture does not describe Adam and Eve's shame as being a result of, quote, not paying attention to the voice of the one who tells us we are loved beyond comprehension, end quote. Beginning the pattern of sin. Instead, it describes shame as a result of opening their eyes. Their eyes were open to what they had done. Their acts brought to them shame in their nakedness, whereas before they may have been clothed in righteousness, as many commentaries describe it as glory, a sort of glow that covered them. They use Christ's transfiguration as an example. Or that they merely realized they were vulnerable and exposed, whereas in perfect righteousness they had no need to feel vulnerable, weak, exposed, or naked, because God was pleased with them, walked with them, and took loving care of them. This explains why they tried to cover themselves because it was a continuation of the belief that God wouldn't provide. And it explains the fear of God when they heard him coming. At this point, they did feel shame and knew they did evil against God. Understanding death was a result of their sin. 
Adam and Eve's shame came from the act of disobedience to God. It is a result of eating the fruit. Thompson would have you believe that Adam and Eve felt shame, fell for the lie that they were not enough for an intimate relationship with God, and so ate to fill that inadequacy. Even if Thompson were right that shame came first, and he's not, he still has the emphasis on the wrong syllable, as Chris Roseborough would say. He wants us to think sin is a result of our doubt and our inadequacy instead of it being a result of our doubt in God's sovereignty, that he knows best will provide and give what is good, that God is more than adequate to give and do all things. As shame is the antecedent of sin by causing one to doubt one's ad- adequacy and one's relationship with God, sin is a result of acting out in belief to this inadequacy severing our relationship with God and others. Quote, The Bible does not provide a dictionary definition of sin the way Webster does. However, it frequently uses the term to refer either to the state of being separated or disconnected from God or to behaviors that lead to or exemplify that condition. The Greek and Hebrew words used most often for sin in scripture mean missing the mark. Sin severs your relationship with God. When you are separated from God, you are separated from others and experience commiserate separation between different elements of your own mind. Anatomy of the Soul, page 183. Scripture talks about sin and has a clear definition. 1 John 3, 4 is clear. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is the transgression of God's laws and an act of rebellion to reject the standard of God's character by not doing what should be done and purposely doing that which shouldn't be done. Thompson's psychologizing of sin makes lack of brain integration the problem, as, quote, sin itself begins with our not attending to our emotional states that ultimately lead to the disintegration of everything, end quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 230. So instead of our selfish desires resulting in lawlessness, which is sin, our non-attendance to our emotional states lead to disintegration, which is sin, and results in separation from God and others. As we heard, Thompson believes that all people truly desire goodness and beauty. We truly desire a relationship with God. That our shame injects into that relationship a sense of inadequacy which causes us to discard that relationship for something we believe will be more fulfilling. Quote, Paul suggests that these sinful behaviors emerge as we first discard or abandon our relationship with God. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. And then delve into a mind that is essentially wicked so comprehensively and desperately sick that we may be unaware of our true state, end quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 184. Notice the shift in this quote. He used Romans 128, which states how humanity in their sin nature rejects the knowledge of God. But Thompson states that sinful behaviors emerge from abandoning a relationship with God. It was not a rejection of a relationship with God. It was a rejection of the attributes of God. See, we all have a relationship with God. and can be one of rebellion against who he is, 
or it can be one of love for who he is, a trust and belief in the knowledge of God. The type of relationship is tied to truth and what God has revealed about himself, his attributes. Scripture does not describe us as ones who want a relationship with God and merely sin keeping ourselves from that relationship. Scripture states that we are born children of wrath, Ephesians 2-3, and that no one searches for God, Psalm 14-2-3, Romans 3-10-12, born with the nature to suppress the truth and not trust or have faith in God. This nature is the cause of our sin and is the result of the fall which separated us from God. We are born into a relationship with God that has death as our wage, Romans 6.23, and the wrath of God set against each one of us. We need something outside of ourselves, outside of our emotions and brains that will save us. We need a sacrifice that propitiates the wrath of God and a righteousness that meets God's perfect standard. We need Jesus Christ. That is what we're going to look at at the next episode. If we can heal ourselves and heal our sin through integrating the whole brain, addressing our emotions and getting rid of our shame through being known by God and others, what is the purpose of Christ's coming and his death? But for time's sake, I will keep that discussion for the next episode. In conclusion for today, though, I want to state some of the problems that may come about for women who believe what Thompson has taught in this particular part of our critique. Thompson's clear about his integration of behavioral neuroscience as just another language by which God speaks. Complying with the same belief, a woman is going to be led down a very unstable path in regards to God's word. God's language becomes especially unclear when the interpretation of man's observation can be different depending on the observer. It's precisely because man believes that God speaks through creation and experience that we have differing religions. And in fact, I believe the idea that there is truth in all religions is relying on this idea as a foundational truth, the idea that God speaks through creation and experience. And that is the deception that this type of teaching leads to and can cause women to shipwreck their faith. Thompson rejects the depravity of man and teaches that shame is the antecedent of sin. A woman who believes this teaching will think that they can save themselves from their sin by merely squashing shame through the knowledge of, not Jesus Christ, (laughs) but the knowledge that they are enough and God made them good. That goodness was not eliminated by the fall, by the one act of sin that brought death to all, but was merely deceived by a lie. If a woman believes that goodness still resides within, then she, like Thompson states of all people, longs for goodness and beauty, then she's a good person who really just makes mistakes, falls for the lie of shame, and can do better when she feels she is known by God and others. This type of teaching is the typical hope of bringing about goodness in a person through giving them confidence, and I believe it's just plain flattery. Yes, we women have a tendency to fall for this type of philosophy because we want to build up by encouraging instead of building up by truth. We are sensitive to emotions and don't want to hurt feelings, but we are called to speak truth in love, and we are instructed to receive truth in love. We must all rightly understand our plight before God. We must be in humble reminder of our need for the gospel. 
A woman who falls for these types of teachings will be led to constantly remind herself of her adequacy before God instead of reminding herself of her need for Christ. So ladies, I hope that you understand that scripture is not only sufficient to teach you about the attributes of God, it is his authoritative word in which we need no other language to help us understand God and give the gospel. The gospel is the same. There's no need to be ashamed of it and look for other ways to make it understandable, even to a world that looks to science as an authority. We don't need to psychoanalyze Genesis 3 to understand how shame produces sin. We don't need to psychoanalyze we don't need to psychologize sin to understand the gospel. The gospel is the proclamation that Christ was crucified for our sin, was resurrected from the dead on the third day for our justification, and ascended to heaven where he rules. We, by faith, receive his righteousness, and he took our punishment, that now we may be reconciled to God through him. This gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. It is a word or a language that is adequate in itself, and I pray you are in his word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk, as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian podcast community. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources, all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me as we live our lives day by day, praising and glorifying God.